I've chosen to entitle this study, The Apparent Disparity of Prosperity, or The Incons Inconsistency of Prosperity. And what I mean by that is it can seem as if those who are the godless, those who have no relationship with the Lord, sometimes it can seem like they're doing so well. And then the godly, it can seem like they're suffering. The psalmist was dealing with this back in Psalm 74. He said he almost slipped. He almost, well, it almost caused him to backslide when he was contemplating all of this. And he says, he's going back and forth. And he says, until I went into the house of God and understood therein. And he was coming to the realization that this is as close to heaven as they're going to get. It's as close to hell as he is going to get. Psalm 94, very timely, especially for our first study of the year, new year, first study of the new decade. It's a Thocratic psalm. Thocratic means that it's a psalm that recognizes that God is seated upon the throne. And when we say God is seated upon the throne, that means that we're acknowledging that God is seated in the place of authority, that all of the affairs of mankind, everything, everything that goes on in this world is under the direction of God. And so this the theocratic song that acknowledges God, it acknowledges that he rules over the affairs of mankind. So that's the backdrop of it. That's how the psalmist is observing these things. Once again, Psalm 94 is an orphan psalm. That means we do not know who the author of it is, other than we know that it has been delivered to us by the Holy Spirit. And so the problem, again, God is seated upon the throne, but what's the problem with his people and can be a problem in our day as well? Well, we saw it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. God wanted to be looked at as the king of Israel. It was his desire that they would not have a man seated upon the throne, but Israel would look to him as their ruler. He would make his decisions through judges and rule the community that way. But the Israelites, they wanted a man to sit on the throne, and they even used the term like everybody else and what they meant, just like the world does. And so God granted their wish, and he told his prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Well, God does still reign over you, whether you like it or not. The problem is, is that he, instead of having the blessing of the direct direction and the knowledge of God, well, you're going to be left to the direction and, and the abilities of some man who is a woman who is seated upon the throne, although God still oversees it. It's still in his hand, but what God does, and we've seen it as we studied through Chronicles, and they had this series of good kings and bad kings. He's allowing the bad kings so it would direct the people back to him, and then he would bless the people with a good king, but then they would wander off from his good grace. And so again, before we go pointing a finger at them and calling them bad people, we can do the same thing. Matter of fact, we're in that season where we've got a great opportunity. When I say we, I do mean you, but I mean the church as a whole. It's another year to vote a new president in, and not just the president, but so many people in office. What is it that we base our vote upon? Do we base our vote upon the promises of a candidate or do we base our vote upon the will of God? Now, again, how many times have we seen this or said this? Seems like we're voting for the lesser of two evils. 
but here we'll do it again this year we have the um, voters guides that will state what the candidates believe you have your Bible are we comparing the two and making our decisions that way or are we again buying into the promises which none of them ever keep now keep in mind you've got on one side the promises of the candidate who will promise you anything in the world and then you've got the promise of God who has given us all things you have the promises of God that are sure and steadfast and an anchor to our soul and, and, and so how do these two mesh well as far as we're concerned they mesh in the voting booth and that I look to God and what does God have to say on this issue which one of these candidates now again none of them may be born again but at least which one best rightly represents God because what we're setting forth is, is either the, the blessings of God upon this nation or the cursings of God upon this nation. So many times we've been made these promises of physical prosperity or material prosperity, and we've made that the priority over morality. And we've seen the nation and how it is, the direction it has gone and how abortion has become part of the fabric of our society, how marriage has been torn apart and even anti-Israel mindset has entered into our society. And because of these things, we see that God's hand has been taken off and we look at the state of our nation. The church is able to make a difference. Now, I don't know how they know these things and I don't remember what the numbers, but they said even the last election, a minority of the church turned out to vote. We must, we must exercise our right to vote. And maybe you'll say, well, I don't know this. Well, you can find out. We live in the age of the internet. You can go find out anything about any candidate ever in just a matter of seconds, all the information that is needed to make a determination. And so from King Saul all the way through to Donald Trump, all rulers are placed in their position by God. Romans makes that very clear. So which makes God, as God is the one who places the authority in the position, it makes him the king of all kings and makes him the Lord of all lords. Then, where are we left at? God is in authority. But when God is in authority and man chooses to not recognize that, man loses his security and we're left again at the wills of those who we placed in office. So again, what we see the psalmist considering in tonight's psalm is that God is on the throne, but why do the godless prosper? If that's the case, how come it seems like the godless are thriving? And again, we can look at our situation, we can look at our landscape in this nation. It seems like those who are contrary to God are the ones who are advancing forward. It seems like the church, the church is losing ground. Well, he's going to look at these things in their proper context. He's going to look at them in detail. And the psalmist, again, is experiencing the same thing that we experience. That's one of the great things about psalms is that they're so practical. And we're going to go verse by verse through this, ver uh, this chapter here tonight and see how God has met the psalmist in his questions and in his wondering. Psalm 94 is divided into six stanzas as the psalmist petitions God on behalf of his perception of this disparity of prosperity. And so the first thing we have is in verses one through two is the request. Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. First, it's essential to understand what is being requested of God here. 
in this first stanza, or if this first stanza is misunderstood, you're not going to understand the rest of the psalm. So in order to understand the request, you must make a determination or distinguish between two words, vengeance and revenge, because there's a big difference between the two. You can look at this, to whom vengeance belongs, and kind of plug in in your mind revenge there, but that's not what he is talking about. These are two different and distinct words. Revenge is considered to be an act of passion. An act of passion, if you do something to me, if you hit me, if you do me wrong, I'll seek to lash out back at you. And that's not how God works. Matter of fact, revenge is usually a response to personal injury or some kind of personal wrong. Again, if you hit me, it's my nature, my nature tells me at least, to hit you back. As a pastor, we've been told not to do that. It's not good for church growth. But the desire is going to be there. And again, you can see human nature at its worst. I was going to say best, but I guess worse in your children. How many times did you have to discipline your children? Why did you hit him? Well, he hit me first. Well, that child wanted to get revenge for his brother or sister, friend, whoever it may be, that, that hit him. Revenge is something that is contrary to God's nature. If he acted like that every time that we have done something wrong, just think of what state we would be in. No, it's not about revenge. It's all about vengeance. Now, vengeance is an act of justice. So you're going to test Pastor Mike and see how godly man you are. After service, you go back there and you punch me in the mouth. Now, what's it going to be? Well, if I turn around and punch you back, then that was revenge. If I call the police, that's seeking vengeance. That's seeking that justice would, be, would prevail in the matter. Either way, you're going to end up on the short end of the stick, so don't punch the pastor. Again, that's not good either. And so you kind of get an idea here. It's not God getting revenge. You know, and I've seen this so much in, in ministry. And matter of fact, traditional religion, it, it, it kind of taught me that God was seeking revenge. If you do something, if you mess up, God's going to get you. And I've seen that again in the church. Well, yeah, God, God's brought disaster upon my life because of this or that. Now you pretty much have brought it upon yourself. But God, even if he has allowed that to enter in, which if it's come in, he has, he's not getting revenge. This is vengeance. You're suffering the repercussions of your actions. But keep in mind, he's a gracious and loving God. He's doing these things for the purpose of correction and redirection to bring you back to where you need to be. God does not punish his people. Punishment, as you look to the end of the Bible, is hell. We're not going to receive that punishment. We receive, receive correction to get us in that good direction that God may use us and we may glorify him. If injuries are revenge, then crimes are avenged. In Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 19, it says, If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, do not avenge. Now that word there is translated, it can be translated revenge as well. It's a different one than what is written here in a little bit. Do not avenge yourselves or seek revenge, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Again, a different word. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so that's what it means when we leave vengeance or we leave justice to God. 
And as we're going to see here, why do we do that? Because God sees with perfect sight. God hears with perfect hearing. He understands the details. All of mankind is naked or see-through or transparent before a holy God. I was reading a book. It's a uh, uh, Grisham. He, he writes these uh, court case books and whatnot, and they're, um, they're, they're based upon real, uh, real cases, but he goes into the story and, and all of that. And anyway, it, it was about a man who had been falsely accused of a crime and had been put in jail for 20-some years. And the story was about this attorney who realized his, this man's innocence and was seeking to, to, um, to set him free. Now, Grisham, the, the author, he was raised in Mississippi in the Bible Belt. You can tell, he, I don't know if he's a born-again believer, <clears throat> excuse me, but he's at least churched. And part of the story was about this man and this injustice and, and how wrong this was. And, and if you read something like that, you know, you get into the characters, there's something about injustice that strikes as wrong. I mean, this is, it's an attribute of God, and it's something that God has created us with, this sense for justice. And so this man who people had lied, people close to him had lied about him, and you know there were drug dealers involved, and they were paying people off or threatening people and all this. Finally, the truth comes out, and the man is exonerated, and he's going and he's making amends, and he's telling these people that he's forgiven them. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I could do that. 20, think of 22 years. Think of 22 years ago, and think if you missed all of that. I mean, that's just an amazing concept. 22 years of your life that you'll never get back not on this earth anyway but this man was going through and he was forgiving the people that had done him wrong are you able to do that are you able to leave vengeance to god that's a hard thing when you think about it especially when you've been done something wrong that again maybe you'll never get back so the psalmist request is not a response to pride but a response to godly justice he's wanting to see what is right come to pass because the law has demanded justice apart from revenge. Now, in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verses 9 through 15, we see the cities of refuge in order to see the heart of God. Now, if you were doing something, whatever it might be, and you accidentally killed somebody, it was, it was an accident, didn't mean to do it. Let's just say somebody walked out in front of your car and you hit him and that person died. The idea was to flee to the city of refuge so the family that may be seeking revenge, well, they wouldn't act forth unjustly. And so you would go into this city of refuge and you would stay there. A determination would be made, okay, was this an accident or was this something that was done on purpose? If it was something done on purpose, if there was some kind of premeditation to this, then justice would be served and you would be executed but if not then you would have this city that you could flee to so that revenge would not be enacted but vengeance would be true vengeance isn't always a negative thing it can be a positive thing justice would come to pass and so again the psalmist lord god now again you see the word lord all in capital letters and that equates to the tetragrammaton yahweh what he's saying here the god who is is our god it says to whom vengeance belongs O god to whom vengeance belongs shine forth lord may your glory shine forth now what does it mean again for the glory to shine forth the idea is is in the determination of what is right and what is just 
Well, the glory is a picture of the presence of God. Now, every it's been my understanding, I haven't examined all the law books before the 19th century, but it's my understanding, I have read this before, that at the beginning was always the 12, com- 12 commandments, <laughs> I added two, 10 commandments. There, there was always at the beginning were the 10 commandments. And the idea was that our legal system would be built upon the existence of the will of God. And as we've done that, and as we've followed through in that, things have gone well. You've heard of the Ten Commandments in, the, in, in front of uh, legal buildings, courtrooms, or whatever. Unfortunately, you've heard about it because they're being removed. But that's his idea. Oh God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Lord, may your justice be done, and may your presence be seen. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. The proud here are those who are apart from God. And so secondly, the second thing we'll see is in verses 3 through 7, we'll see first the boast of the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see nor does the God of Jacob understand. It's kind of that mindset, see, I did it, nothing happened, so there's either no God or God does not see or can't act. And so the psalmist is making an observation of society, and he's seeing how the proud, the proud of the world, they harass the people of God because the two are diametrically opposed to one another. And so the world knows, and if the world knows, that we will not seek revenge, well, the world's going to come after us with even greater fury. And so God, God is the one who protects us, and we have to have a surety, and we have to have a confidence in the hand of God who understands all that's going on. And so what he's doing is he's looking at society, this cross-section of society, and he's seeing how the proud oppresses or how the proud is destroying a society by, well, he's looking at the helpless in the society in these verses. And the first one he looks at is the widow. And the idea, especially in that society, a a woman would be very vulnerable who didn't have a husband. A woman who had a husband, her husband was her protector, and it was because of her husband that she would find her place in society. That's just the way things worked back then. But a woman who was a widow, she would be hurting she would be left to the wills of the society. And matter of fact, it was very common for a woman to have to go into prostitution to even support herself, especially if she had children during those times. So you see how helpless the widow was. There was the foreigner, those who have limited rights in a country not their own. And so the idea was God had told Israel, remember when you were in Egypt, how I watched over you and protect you and even delivered you, you are to not take advantage of the foreigner who is in your land. And then again, somebody else who's vulnerable is the orphan, those who have no father to protect them. In perfect conditions, especially today, every widow should be provided for from within the church. We need to take care of our own. If you're part of the church, and we'll look at it even a little bit closer, if you're part of Calvary Chapel, Ontario, Calvary Chapel, Ontario has a responsibility to protect its own. There would be no foreigner 
because we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we would be digested into the body here and orphans would be absorbed into church families as well. One of my favorite verses concerning this, you've heard it before, but it's in Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 24. It says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Now, verse 23, so he's speaking to people who are in authority, more than likely people that have families, and he says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. He says, if you afflict them in any way, and they cry, if they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And the idea is here with the intent of answering, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives then shall be widows, and your children fatherless. And so I'll put your wives and your children at the mercy of those who, well, act like you. And so the idea here is, is the grace and the mercy that I exhibit, when the need is there, it will be exhibited either back to me or exhibited back to my own. If I'm an oppressor, then I will suffer that same oppression or those who are of mine as well. A warning in verses 8 through 11. Understand, you senseless amongst the people, and you fools, when, you will not, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. For the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. He's talking about the thoughts of man apart from the knowledge of God. And so the psalmist is as if he is preaching a sermon to the godless here through rhetorical questioning that they would think their answer through and become wise. It's a fact of nature that anything that is created is inferior to the creator. And so they slay the widow, back up in verse 6, the widow and the stranger murder the fatherless, yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Well, you need to understand the superiority of the Lord because he who planted or he who has created the ear, shall he not even so much hear? He who formed the eye or created the eye, shall he not so much more see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? The creator is above all. He hears all, he sees all, and he corrects those who need correction. Have you ever seen somebody that has had plastic surgery? I mean, even the best of work, you look at that and it's just not perfect because it's not done by the hand of God. And so, you know, there's unnecessary plastic surgery, but some people have had necessary plastic surgery accidents or whatever it might be. And there's some people, you know, they've even got websites you can look at a celebrity and think, what in the world happened to them? You look at some of these people and you think, they went and they spent thousands of dollars to look like that? you'd think that the, the end result would be why you would have plastic surgery so you wouldn't look like that. But again, my point is, is that plastic surgery is always going to pale in comparison to the created beauty of God. Virtual reality in computer games, amazing what they're able to do, but it's not perfect. You still recognize it that way. Even a prosthesis, they, they do a good job today in these things, but they still pale in comparison to the creator. You think God doesn't hear? Well, you just think according to your ability, but God hears all. You think God doesn't see? Well, you're comparing it to your ability, 
but God sees all. See, God has to hear all. God has to see all because all things work together for his good. If there's anything going on out there apart from his control, then all things aren't working together for his good. He, then he doesn't see all, and he doesn't hear all, and then you bring into the equation, well, what does he really see? What does he really hear? And so you could say, well, I mean, even the littlest thing, I, I mean, Pastor Mike, you tear a piece of paper and it falls to the ground. I mean, is that the will of God? If it happened, it's the will of God. I, I, I mean, I don't know how God works in the detail, silly things such as that, but I do know the events of my life. I do know the occurrences that happen. I do know that as I go home tonight and I go home and open my, my, my front door, go in and lay down in bed, it was all under the direction of God. God didn't say, go forth, Mike, and go home and get in bed, but God is there and God governs these things. And it's the same thing with you. And we can have this confidence that nothing is spiraling out of control. It works in the good times, but how much more so does it work in the bad times? Or I should say, the hard times. As you're going through the difficult day, you can then have a confidence as hard as this is, we'll look at that in a minute, but as hard as this is, God's got it under control. There's a Jewish saying, the three best safeguards against falling into sin are to remember there is an ear that hears everything. There is an eye that sees everything. And there is a hand that writes everything into the book of knowledge, which shall be opened at the time of judgment, judgment or vengeance. We know in Revelation chapter 20, there are books that are open. And those are the books, those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life. There are other books open, and those are the books of the works of man, so that proof of how man falls short. Now, man knows these things. All of humanity knows that there is a God who sees, and there is a God who hears. How do they know this? Well, we're going to be looking at the work of the Holy Spirit on Sunday. We're going through a series, a church that acts like acts. And in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment or vengeance because the ruler of this world is judged. All of the world knows this. They may not acknowledge it, but all the world, and I'm talking about the unsaved, knows this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit speaks to them. That's why even the world, when they do something shameful, they're shamed because they know right and wrong. God has created us with that sense. All cultures, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to murder because these have been instilled in mankind by God through the Spirit. And these are just simple realities that are there. And what I see in these realities is the proof of the existence of God and the work of God in the lives of men and women. It's through the psalmist now that you, that you see that God acknowledges these injustices that he recognized, that the psalmist recognizes. But again, he's doing a work in the midst of it. Because what is the good that all things work together towards? Is the salvation of the souls of men and women. And again, it's the church that God is going to bring to himself. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 15, fourthly, we see blessings here. <clears throat> Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law 
that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. The psalmist speaks to those whom the ungodly have been going after, who will find blessings, happiness, or contentment. Those who've been suffering at the hands of the godless, he says, blessed is the man in whom you have instructed, O Lord, the man who has heard the word of God and had a desire to follow the word of God. God's word instructs all of mankind, but these promises are for those whom receive them. That in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of these seemingly injustice, that it's there that we can find, we can find peace, the peace of God that surpasses understanding, that we can have a contentment. And then again, receive of the blessings of God, not necessarily material things, but just the knowledge that my God walks, watches over me, my God keeps me, and my God directs me. And to have that strength that brings courage for tomorrow. I'm a control freak. I like to control everything. And God cons constantly shows me how little control I actually have. Because the problem with having everything under your control, well, you lose sight of the fact that it's God who is directing all. Control. God has been teaching me to give things over to people in the church and let them run with it because I don't want this to be the church of Mike. I want this to be God's church. I want the people, the leadership in the church to hear from the Holy Spirit and to be directed by the Holy Spirit and, and for us to come together and to be able to do a good work for God. And whatever it is, whatever direction it is that God leads us, again, we have these certain time frames in which we look into the future. And what I mean by that, here we are, the second day of 2020. And guess what? It's going to go like that. I've, I found out the older you get, the slipperier the slope gets and the faster time goes. But it's those times that we, we evaluate the future. We're, we're start, my wife and I were starting to think, okay, what are we going to be doing in 2020? We don't know exactly, but we'll make our plans, but we'll be directed by the Lord. But nonetheless, to submit ourselves to him and, and, and praying that the others of the church submit themselves to the leading of the Lord. And then we have a church that God is leading. Now, there may be some hard things that are coming up, not bad things, because for a Christian, there's nothing bad. There might be some really hard things, though. And those hard things... Well, as we enter in, we realize that we're entering into a God who is, inhabits eternity, a God who is already there, a God who is already doing the work that we're entering in. And we need to have that boldness because I don't know what's going to happen in this coming year, but I know that God is already there and God is already doing that good work. And so we are able to have a confidence in that, knowing that this is all in the hands of the Lord. There's a couple promises that are given here. First one, in verse 13, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity. The idea is relief from trouble. Why is this important? Job 5, 7. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. The trouble that we get in is usually made by us. It's usually trouble that we have designed and trouble that we have, well, even as he's talking about those who dig a ditch, it's more than likely ditches that they have dug and they have fallen into. How many times have you fallen into your own ditch that you've dug? Jesus knew that the godly would experience trouble, 
doing his will. And one of the last things that he said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, we're entering into 2020, a new decade with Jesus Christ by our side. Think of that. You're entering into whatever it is you're entering into with Jesus Christ by your side. And it's not so much that it's Calvary Chapel that he's entering in with him by our side. It's with each and every one of us that we are entering in with him by our side. Second promise, verse 13, the last part, until the pit is dug for the wicked. And again, it does not say here that God is necessarily digging the pit. Biblically, the wicked are more than likely actually falling into their own pits that they have dug. Psalm 7, verse 15, he made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch what he made. These plans and these schemes that come up contrary to God, they're going to come back on those who have uh, designed them. The heaven that they are constructing for themselves today will be their hell of tomorrow. Hell would simply be a godless existence. Third promise, verse 14. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Just simply a reminder of the faithfulness of God. Psalm 121, verse 3, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Romans 8, 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, if a question is asked in the Bible, 99% of the time the answer is to the negative. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. If God is for now people will try to stand against you, but nobody will prevail against us. If God has called us to go in a direction, there's going to be roadblocks and there's going to be obstacles because there's roadblocks and obstacles to everything. But those who prevail are the ones twofold, really, those who put their trust in God. But what did Paul say was the one thing? Hey, Paul, what's the one thing you do? The one thing that I do is to continue to push forward. Continue to push forward. Never quit. Never stop pushing forward. Because you never know when a wall is going to fall down. You never know when an obstacle is going to be removed. Now, if you continue to butt your head against the same wall and it's not going anywhere, turn to the right or turn to the left. Go in a different direction, but keep moving forward. Maybe God's just saying, no, 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 over here. And you'll find a pathway through that wall or a weak spot in that wall, and you'll be able to go. Fourth promise, the triumph of righteousness, verse 15. But judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in, ha- and all the upright in heart will follow it. Psalm 2, 8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. In the end, evil loses, and the righteous win in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, we see a personal testimony, verses 16 through 19. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delighted my soul. Notice verse 16. He has looked for other means of help. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? It's the Lord. The Lord is the one who is truly our our help. Now, how does the Lord help us? Well, 
again, as I've alluded to at least earlier, how does the Lord help, how does the Lord help the one in the church? Again, as a pastor, I got a good view of this because the majority of the church throughout the year puts something in the agape box. We'll just use this as an example. Those who give at this church, we, not, we don't just pay the bills and pay the electricity and the rent and all that stuff. Some of the giving that you have given has gone to put food on people's tables. Some of the giving that you have given has gone to pay some people's bills that they, they couldn't pay. I, I've seen people who are tremendously blessed and just don't know what to say, and I just tell them, you don't thank me, you know, thank the Lord because that was the hand of God working through the church. And again, we have to be mindful of that. How does God provide? He provides through you, through the members of the body of Christ. We were able to provide for a family that had absolutely nothing. We have a, I don't know if they're watching, I won't say their names, but um, a family who I would say the majority of you maybe have seen but don't really know. And one of their kids put a prayer request and because they had nothing for the holidays. And we were able to, to bless them, able to provide for them. And I say we, God provided through that. Now, they weren't praying to me. Did I intercept their prayer? Well, they give us their prayer request, but this is just God working on both ends. And so we at this church, we have never had to turn a member of our church away because we couldn't help them out. Now, we haven't always given them exactly what they wanted, but we have been able to see that their needs are provided for, which brings me back to my wife's favorite verse, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things which had been discussed before were his needs will be provided to you. If you're not part of the church, you don't receive that. I can't tell you through the course of the week how many people call here asking for stuff, as I, well, asking for money. As I've told you before, we uh, will provide food to just about anybody, and we've given out plenty of food boxes and whatnot. But as far as money, as far as bills and stuff, that's only the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel, Ontario. And so we've been able to provide. We're, we have the outreach to Mercy House, and that probably costs us about $300 a month, give or take. But we're able to feed people who are homeless and minister. That's an outreach that we do there. We, we spend money and we buy bus passes so people can go to jobs and interviews and we give the bus passes to Mercy House, the outreach to the homeless again, and they distribute it them. And so how does God move? God moves in a lot of ways and you can't cease to see that. You must see that God is moving in this church and he moves through you because if you don't give, if you don't serve here, then we don't see a movement by the, by the hand of God. Actually, what I think will happen, he'll dispose of you and he'll bring somebody else in. I mean, if it's a church that is of the Lord. But nonetheless, you see, and we have that, that privilege to be part of what God is doing. And a lot of the times, we're not going to know what God has done. But just be confident that God does good works, good things through his people. And the good things that God does is always related to the people of the house of God. It's an amazing thing. Verse 20. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil, by, devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense, and my God the rock of my refuge. 
He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off from their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. And so complete dependency upon the Lord and what God is going to do. I mean, we can pray for justice and that's a good thing. But understanding that at the end, God's justice is going to prevail. Everybody who is cast for eternity apart from God, who is condemned, they, that is just that they are condemned. It breaks our heart, and it's going to break God's heart, but it's just. Everybody who has been brought into the kingdom of God has been brought there by the grace of God. We all deserve the, 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 the vengeance that those other people received, but God, through his grace, because we receive of the gospel, we have been brought into this glorious place. Habakkuk understood this concept in Habakkuk chapter 3, the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. He realized there's going to be times when the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. So he's talking about hard times that we go through. There may, may not be a job. May, may lose the job. The, the health, or my health may not be all that it's been in the past. And even if that's not the case, age, age does take its toll. All, all of these hardships that, that can come into our lives and, and do come into our lives, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. See, he's recognizing the priority here. And the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. I don't know about deer in the high hills. I haven't seen that, but I have seen mountain goats, and it's amazing to see them walk in the hills. And the stability that they have in that unstable place. We've got a great stability in this world, and God has caused our feet to be stable. And even though we don't know what's going to happen in the future, I do know that God does exist in my future, even right now. The church and the world, we, we are going to be diametrically opposed to one another. Matter of fact, we are to go in, we are to win disciples there, but there's going to be opposition. Paul said, great doors been opened for me, but there's a lot of opposition here. There's always going to be that opposition. But it's those who keep their eyes upon the Lord. We prevail over the hardships of life, the one thing that we do is to continue to pursue, continue to push forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus. And one day we'll be in his sight and hear the words, well done. Father, Psalmist looked at this dilemma and saw you. And so, Father, I pray that we would truly keep our eyes upon you in the midst of all situations and circumstances. Things are going to happen, Lord, that are confusing and that we don't understand. But God, we have your word that keeps us on the right track. And even as you told Joshua, as he was preparing to lead your people, the first leader that was led by your written word, not to veer off to the left from it, not to veer off from the right of it, but cut that straight path. And so, Father, when things happen that are confusing, I pray, Father, that we would just cut that straight path in your word, seeking, God, your direction and your desires. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight. I just lift up the future and just pray what you have, but I pray for today that you would give us strength and assurity that, God, it's you who's in control, and, Lord, we would follow hard after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?
We finished 1 John a couple of weeks ago before we got into our Christmas season, and I'm going to be doing a series, uh, probably a six-week series in between 1 John and 2 John. We're just going to do an overview of the book of Acts, and I've chosen to call it a church that acts like Acts. I think as we study the Bible, we have to kind of look at ourselves in the mirror that is the Word of God and see how we're doing And I think the book of Acts is a perfect place for us to put our noses for a couple of weeks just to have a checkup at our church to make sure we're going in a good direction. Um, Because you came to church tonight, we have a blessing for you. Rosemary made, I don't know, kind of look like uh, minestrone to me, but it's some kind of soup. She always makes such good stuff. God bless you guys. See you Sunday.